Now you can tell you're in the northern, northwestern Canada because people think Buffalo, Western New York, not too far away. <laughs> and uh, since we've been here, we've been in the car for about, what did we figure, 12 to 14 hours yesterday? Because the Dags were nice enough to take us to Jasper to see the wild Canadian Rockies. We had an incredible day yesterday. The sun was out, and uh, what a trip. We've just had so much fun. And I've, I'm just delighted that Sandy uh, invited Leo and I here because this is, I got, I got new cowboy boots. <laughs> and you know, cowboy boots figure, they're, they're a big part of my story. And I never had any, so <laughs> now I've got them. So you'll hear about that as I go on. I'm a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and a member of the Hamburg Courage to Change Monday night group. And I'm really, uh, I'm happy to be here for a lot. I've, I've laughed more in this weekend than I've laughed in a long time. Principals are not into laughing much lately, <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. Even though there's a lot of cute little kids around, they all have parents. <laughs> Makes my job really hard. But I've been in the car with Sandy and, and uh, Scott now for two days, and uh, it's like, it's, I've been like with the joke meister. <laughs> Scott has a joke for everything. And we've been just hearing jokes and laughing like crazy, and you know, you think he can't have another one. And then there's another one. And then I saw people showing him jokes here today, written on paper. So, you know, so I'm going to tell an Al-Anon joke. It's the only one I have. You know, Al-Anon, I was telling Sandy, we had a, we had a regional conference, and we were, for our entertainment, we thought we would have Al-Anon stand up and tell jokes. I don't suggest this to you folks, because I, it's not our long suit. But anyway, I'll tell you this joke. I used to be a French teacher, so it's, this joke has a little French setting. It was, took place during the French Revolution when the guillotine was the method of getting rid of people. And uh, there was some AAs and Al-Anons gathered around in the crowd while they were taking heads off. And the deal was that if you came up and you put your head on the block and the blade did not fall, you went free. So the first guy comes up, it's an AA, he puts his head on the block. The uh, guy pulls the, pulls the rope for the blade to fall, doesn't come down, he's out of there. Next AA comes up, puts his head on the block, they pull the rope, blade doesn't fall, he's out of there. The Al-Anon comes up, she puts her head on the block. She looks up and says, you know, if you put a little oil up there. <laughs> so Scott, there's a freebie <laughs> put in your collection. But that's who we are. I was just in the bathroom and so this door was squeaking and somebody said, you know, I could just get a little WD-40. I don't need a guy to come in here. I don't, where are you in there? I thought that. <laughs> when I was a when I was a little girl, I uh, was from a family of five. I was the youngest at the time, the baby, and uh, had an older sister and you know an older another older brother, another older sister, and no one would play with me. And we had I had a cousin 
a boy who was just a couple years older, and we'd go out, we spent a lot of time at his house on the, on, on the Erie Canal in uh, North Tonawanda, New York. And I was there as a child, maybe four years old, and, and he always would ask me to be on his wiffle ball team. And, you know, if they were choosing up sides, he would pick me while my sister was saying, get out of here. So I love this guy. And uh, one day we were playing. I was staying overnight there. And we were in the neighborhood playground, which was across the street. And we were playing in the sandbox. And he and I were building these sandcastles. And there was a neighborhood bully. who was sort of like Leo, who you'll meet tomorrow, by the way who kept running around, as neighborhood bullies do, and he could run right through our sandbox and mess up our castle. That was his goal in life. And so we were getting a little aggravated. We're, you know, I'm four, he's six, or something like that. And um, he looks at me and he, he says, well, we're not, we're not going to let that happen anymore. We got a plan. We're going to make a plan. Oh, my God, I love this. I was saluting. Let's hear the plan. I was ready. So he says to me, we're going to make this, we're going to make our castle one more time. We're going to let him run through. We're going to build the castle a second time. We're going to let him run through. The third time when we build our castle and he runs through, we're each going to grab one of his legs. We're going to bring him down. He's going to leave us alone. Oh, my God, I love this. So, you know, we're, we're in the sandbox and I'm building the sand that I'm watching. And I can see this kid tearing around the playground. I know he's coming comes right through. So I look at my cousin, and I'm starting to get itchy now. And I'm building the castle, I'm looking around, and I see him circling, and he's coming right for us. And I'm ready, and I reach out, and I grab his leg, and I can see my cousin looking like, not yet, but I've got his leg, and I'm not letting go. And so he kept running with this child, this little girl, attached to his leg over the rest of the playground. So you need that was, that was when I was four years old. When I was 30 and I came to this program, I was the same person. I was out too early and I never let go. And that's all you need to know about me, really. I could just sit down right now. And Marty told you, Marty pegged us pretty well last night, so, you know, I'm not so unique. That when I was 30, that was a character defect I brought into Al-Anon with me. Another story I remember from my childhood was when I was um, a, a little bit younger than that, my mother had had a child after me, and that child was a Down syndrome child. And he wasn't meant to live long, but she brought him home, and for nine months he resided in our home, and we loved him, and he took up residence with us, and then died at about nine months old. Now, I don't recall much of that. You don't recall too much of that when you're three, but what I did know is I was the surviving little child. I was a happy child. My mother nicknamed me Mimsy. Because I was, I guess. And I knew at that time that in this sadness of our household, losing this child and this sibling, I could make people feel good. I was the surviving little kid. I was, I could, I was laughing, I was playing, and I knew from that moment on that my job in life was to make people feel better. That's what I brought at 30 years old also to this program. So, you know, there I was. I went through uh, my childhood. I thought it was a, a good enough childhood. Uh, a few years ago, I reexamined that, and I'll tell you about that later in my story. But I thought everything was just fine. Uh, we, I came from a household where drinking was what we did. We drank whenever there was a party. We drank whenever there was a holiday. We drank 
more than we ever needed to drink. We drank beer in the summer. We drank beer in the winter. We drank beer on Sunday mornings before noon. And, you know, it was just part of what I grew up in. And I thought that's how everybody's lives were. And so um, knowing that drinking was just the way things were, you know, I never even knew there were so many things on holidays in my family. We had the big dinner in our household at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I thought that's what you did. I thought that was the holiday dinner. Little did I know that the reason we did that is because if we waited till 6 o'clock, everybody was too drunk to eat. So my mother and my aunts would say, okay, we'll feed them at 2 o'clock, <laughs> you know, and then whatever happens the rest of the day is the rest of the day. But that was a tradition I always carried on, never really knew what that was about. So I went through this little childhood of, uh, of my father drinking, my uncles drinking, my, you know, my mother would drink a few. It was just part of our lives and never thought anything about it. And when I was 16 years old, I was in high school, and this little freckle-faced redhead kid came by. And he was cute, and he was fun, and he made me laugh. And uh, I fell in love at 16 years old. And he came to our house for one of these holiday dinners. I remember from walking in the door, my aunt saying to him, I think he must have been 17. He walked through the door and she said, Leo, hi, how are you? Want a beer? He said, yeah. <laughs> he did. Sat down and he was part of the family from then on. You know, we talk about, talk about people fitting together. And, and, and we were just, you know, if I hadn't met Leo or married and married Leo, I would have married somebody just like Leo. Although after you meet him, you'll know there's nobody just like Leo. <laughs> but you know, I was, we were just destined. We were just destined. So at 16 years old, we started to date. And I, being, being the kind of person I was, was into being the good girl, was into studying hard, uh, was into wanting to achieve something. Leo was not. I, um, I was the honor society. Leo was not. I was the orchestra. Leo was not. And so, you know, from the very beginning, he was my walk on the wild side. We talked about that. You know, I was, I was Beethoven. He was rock and roll. And uh, so we just clicked from the very beginning and, and fell in love and uh, couldn't seem to ever get rid of one another after that. And Lord, I tried. <laughs> so we went together. We had the high school romance. All we ever did is make up, break up. That was the name of our tune, you know, make up, break up. Sometimes we did it three times in one evening. And that kind of solidified for us what our relationship was going to be. And you'd think, wouldn't you think, that I would notice that there was some drinking going on as part of our relationship. But then why would I? It was part of my life. It was part of my mother complaining about my father being, you know, never around when you needed him. And, you know, we would commiserate together. So even though I would say to Leo in the million notes I wrote to him during the day, why don't you, don't you think you could not drink with the boys and come over and see me on Friday night? Or, you know, write little, write little things about not drinking so much. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think those would have been like clues? But no, because... What I knew was that what Leo want needed, this could be group participation, so get ready. What Leo needed in his life to turn him around was the love of a good woman. 
all I needed. And God knows I was good. And I worked hard at being good, and I got, I got gooder and gooder. And you know what? I came into Al-Anon so good. I was a martyr. And then when I met Leo and married Leo, I became sainted. You know, I wasn't just good. I was good. And so Leo and I um, managed to marry each other. And we just couldn't break up. He went to Vietnam. I went to college. You know, he'd come home. I'd say, this is not what I want. He'd say, never say that to a drunk. He didn't even know he was a drunk at the time, but he said, never say that. And so we ended up getting married. And the day we were going to walk down the aisle, I in my, my wedding dress, my father ready to take my arm, I had this moment of clarity. I had a lot of moments of clarity, but I could push them away. But I had this moment of clarity. And I went, <coughs> that's what my father heard, which caused him to look at me and say, are you all right? Walking the bride down on her moment, her glorious moment, and I was gasping for air. And I said to him, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I became, I began my life of fine. And from then on, everything for years after was just fine. And no matter how bad it got in our house, and it got pretty bad, when I put on my little smile and went outside, I was fine. I was good, and I was fine. And people would say, hi, Mary, how's everything? And I'd say, fine. They'd say, how's Leo? Oh, fine. Yes, yes, oh, we're fine. Yep, we're all fine. When I came to you, you explained that acronym to me. I thank you for that. But truly, I began my life of fine, and I just pretended we were, we were all right. I just pretended that it was, it was the way it was. it was. It was good. It was fine. And, you know, I'd look at, I'd see those quizzes about alcoholism, or does some, do someone you love drink too much, or I'd see a television program about that. I'd turn that sucker off. I'd push that magazine away. I had those moments of clarity, but I wouldn't allow them, and that was my denial. Because if you deny it, you don't have to deal with it. It was my protection. I didn't know that then. I know it now. You helped me with that. So we went through this life, and we, uh, we had a couple of children. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I wasn't happy very much anymore. And I would catch myself standing at the kitchen window, and I'd be so sad. You know, I was just... I wasn't sad, I was melancholy. You know, it was more like Frank Sinatra when you were melancholy. And I'd be thinking, whatever happened to that girl who used to laugh? Whatever happened to that person? She's not laughing now, she's sad all the time. I didn't look that great. When we were uh, finally into recovery, we'd gone to visit Leo's brother and his wife and there were some pictures on the refrigerator. It was an old black and white. I looked at the pictures and I said, who's that couple? She looked at me. She laughed. She said, that's you and Leo. I was wearing my hair. Of course, it was the 70s. I was wearing my hair 
parted in the middle with these tube-like pigtails that hung down. I wore this, this faded olive drab green turtleneck. I had these Indian moccasins on. And the only way I really should have recognized myself is that Leo had a beer bottle propped up against him. <laughs> you know, that should have been my clue that that's who we were. So I wasn't looking that great. I wasn't thinking that straight. I was sad all the time. And uh, Leo's drinking was a problem. And in fact, one, one time I realized that it was a problem bigger than, than I wanted to handle. And uh, we were, my sister, my closest sister, my mother had our, her children in groups. She started having children at 18 and she quit when she was 41. And we were kind of like in these little groups. And um, this sister was in my set. And she had married and she went back to school and she'd become a nurse and she, had, she was raising two kids and I was really proud of her and it was her graduation, I was, we're, I was going to go and Leo didn't come home that night. It wasn't the first one, but he didn't come home and that was a pretty big thing. And when he did come home, I recall saying to him the next morning, and of course I didn't go to the party because you just didn't do those things, you had to sit home and wait. You know, you had to wait at the window, watching for the third blue car after the red car, which was going to be bringing him home. Or you had to worry. You know, I had a lot of worry in time to get in. People would say to me, Mary, do you want to go here? And I'd say, no, i got to worry. <laughs> got to worry about Leo. It's my worrying time. You know, I don't have my worrying quota in. So that's all I was doing is worrying, waiting at the windows, screaming and yelling. And that morning, he, when he came home, next morning I said to him, you know, Leo, I think you have a drinking problem. And he said, yeah, I might. And I said, why don't you call AA? Now, I didn't have a clue about AA, but I must have read it somewhere. And he said, good idea, why don't you call them? <laughs> so I jumped out of bed, went into the kitchen, found the number for AA, dialed it, said to them, hello, I have a friend who has a husband who has a drinking problem. <laughs> and they said to me, honey, when he calls himself, we can help you. That's all they said. I hung up the phone, they said, okay. Went back in, got back into bed, never mentioned it again. And so life went on. Only something was happening inside of me, I guess. And I was thinking, there's got, there's got to be something more here. So I thought, well, you know what? Maybe if you went back to work. I wasn't working full time when my kids were little. And I thought, well, okay, I'll go back to work and try to get some, something going here for myself. And uh, so Leo was changed shifts. He started working a night shift. And uh, he would. I thought he was taking care of our child in the morning when... When, he, uh, when I went to work, it wasn't such great child care, as I found out later, but at the time I'd go off to work, and you know, I started to get a little sense of, sense of myself back and have this sense that there, there could be some sort of life. And, and uh, in the meantime, I was still this, cra this crazy maniac, screaming woman, because what else was there to do? You know, I, didn't, I was never going to be a person to dump out alcohol. That would cost you money. And, you know, I was guarding the money. I would give Leo $2 for the whole week, and he would still get drunk. 
say, how can he do that on two bucks? No matter what. You know, he'd be out till all hours of the morning. How can he do that? I know I rationed him with only two bucks. You know, I had my little forms of control. Um, I, I would fight with Leo. I found out, you know, you, it's better not to fight with Leo because it comes right back at you and I wanted to protect myself, so I didn't go there after a little while. So I took all my anger, all my frustration, all my, my, my sadness, everything out of my kids. Now I know I'm so unique in this. But they were little guys and they were maniacs. <laughs> they were in our household after all. And, uh, you know, I can just remember yelling and screaming at those kids all the time. And being afraid that once I'd start spanking them, I, I was afraid I couldn't stop. And it had to run out of the room. And I thought it was about them. And I didn't know it was about me. And one of the first gifts you gave me when I finally got to this program was a restored relationship with those little guys. Because when I came into this program, my oldest son was five, and he was yelling, I was yelling, I hate you, at him, and he was spitting at me. And all of that was about me, because I was nuts. And I didn't know what to do with it, and I wouldn't face the real problem, because it was too big. It was too scary. So I went back to work, and... Uh, Suddenly, somebody came, this guy came over, and he was, we moved to a different house, and he was helping Leo um, build a, a mantle or something in our living room, I remember. And he ended up, he would stay with us, because they were working this funny shift, and they'd work during the day, and whatever it was. And he, he said something about Leo's drinking at work, in front of Leo, and in front of me, and all of a sudden, it was like, oh, the cat is out of the bag. And uh, Leo knew, I knew. And all of a sudden, things changed. And Leo came home one night, and I used to do, my, the height of my sanity was illustrated this way. In addition to his yelling and screaming that I was doing at my kids while I was saying we were all fine, I would do bizarre things like call bars. Did any of you ever call bars? I had, I had them listed on one page, so I didn't have to bother looking them up. Leo was a bar drinker, so, you know, I wasn't going to look up all those bars. I just had them listed right there. So he wouldn't be home. It would be 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I wasn't sleeping. He wasn't home. So I'd go. I'd, I'd switch into my compulsive bar calling mode. I couldn't stop myself. You drank, I called bars. What can I tell you? So I'd call the first bar, and they'd say, I'd say, is, is Leo Gregory there? And they'd say, um, I don't know, check. Time would pass. You get back on and say, no, I don't think he's here. So I'd call the next bar. Is Leo there? I don't know, I'll check. Muffle, muffle. Hey, Leo, are you here? <laughs> no. Leo's not here. Thank you very much. Call the third bar. I was nuts. I would just call bars. I couldn't stop myself from calling bars. Even though I knew I was never going to get a real answer, I couldn't stop myself. One morning, uh, we had a little Austin Healey Sprite sports car. That was our second car. I could barely drive it. I was pregnant with uh, my second child. And it seemed important that I would go find Leo this morning because well, the sun was coming up and he wasn't home. And he needed someone to guide him home. So I, I leave my house, 
with this little sleeping baby in the house, and I put my pregnant body behind the wheel of this Austin Healy, which was no easy task. I want to tell you, because you know, the steering wheel was the same place I was. And I started it up at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning, and you know, Austin Healy's don't, don't purr when they start up. You know, there's this explosion of sound, and I, ta- I drive away, and I go around looking at the bars for Leo, and I find him, and I say, okay, there he is, and I come home, and I think, well, that was a good idea. <laughs> that was the height of my sanity when I was doing those kinds of things. It seemed like the thing at the time to do. Wouldn't you have done that? You did it. I know you did. <laughs> so that's where I was. And suddenly Leo came home from work one day and, and uh, he said, uh, you know, actually he didn't come home from work. It was, it was uh, an early morning. He'd come home very late. He was very drunk. And the next morning, once again, he woke up and I said, Leo, you have a problem. And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, do you want to call AA? And this time, I handed him the number and I walked out of the room. And that morning, Leo called AA on his own. And he told me what they told him was that they would send him a packet of literature and that he should really think very seriously about whether he should go to any meetings or not because this was a really huge decision in his life and they didn't want him jumping into it. (laughs) So this college-educated woman said, Oh. (laughs) Okay. So he, he, he attempted to get sober on his own for about a month, and he did it. It was pretty ugly, and I didn't really know what was happening, but he, a month went by, and he hadn't had anything to drink that I was aware of. And all of a sudden he says to me, you know, let's go, let's drive down to the now famous Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, because our friends lived there, whom we hadn't seen in a long time, and, and our friends were... Uh, had been Leo's best man at our wedding. Leo had been the best man at his wedding. A couple weeks later, they drank together. I was glad to see them out of our lives. And suddenly, we're going to drive down and see them in Pennsylvania. But we did know Tom, his friend, had gotten so We'd heard through the grapevine he wasn't drinking. So that sounded okay to me. So we drove all the way down there, and we talked, and Tom took Leo to his first AA meeting in Pennsylvania, And I stayed home with his little wife, Teresa, this little Sicilian Italian girl who is about this high. And she said to me, this is my introduction to Al-Anon, while the boys were off at their meeting, she said, you know, there's a program for you. And I said, oh, what is it? She said, it's Al-Anon, because you have character defects too. (laughs) Wow. made me want to run right out to Al-Anon. I told you I was sainted. I was the good one. What character defects could I possibly have had? And why would I have to go somewhere to have them pointed out? But we drove home to our hometown. The next week, we both walked down the street to the end of the street where there was a church. Leo went upstairs to the AA meeting. I went downstairs to Al-Anon. 
we were all crowded and they were in this big meeting hall. There were about 20 of us in this little room the size of a bathroom. <laughs> that's how it was then. And I went to my first meeting. And I, the person who was at that meeting, now, you know, I had this sense of, because I wasn't saying alcoholic or alcoholism yet, Leo was saying that way before I ever said it. Because, you know, if he said he was an alcoholic, what the heck was a nice girl like me doing there? I wasn't saying that. So this woman, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, these people are all going to be like the dregs of the earth. I'm going there to hear about my character defects. You know, this is going to be a fun night. I walk in the room, and there's a woman there who was a, uh, a neighbor and had been graduated with my older brother. And she looked pretty nice. In fact, everybody looked pretty nice. Everybody was laughing. And she took me to my first newcomer's meeting. And she said to me, you know, Mary, Leo has a problem, if he has a problem. But she said, you know what? You didn't cause that problem. And I thought, I didn't? Because Leo had told me I did. <laughs> a lot of times. You know, it was about the dinner wasn't that good, uh, the sex wasn't that good, if there was any. Uh, you know, there were a lot of things going on that Leo said, that's your fault. And I believed it because I thought, you know, I probably am not loving, I'm not loving him enough somehow. Because if he loved me, he wouldn't drink. And so I must not be making him know that I love him enough. And she said, uh-uh. You didn't cause that. It's an illness. It's a, it's a disorder. It's a disease. It has nothing to do with you. And she said, and here's something else. You don't have to fix it. Oh, my God. You know, I'm the one that was suggesting about the oil. I didn't have to fix it. My mother told me I had to fix it. Can't you get him under control? Why don't you throw him out? Everybody told me that. I thought it was my job as a good woman. But she's telling me it's not my job. She's telling me I didn't cause it, I didn't have to control it or cure it. And it was like this giant weight got lifted off my shoulders. I, want, I, I bought that the first night. I know that there are members in Al-Anon who for years struggle with step one because they don't know they're powerless over alcohol. And they still stay, but that first night I gave that away. What a relief. And I started going to Al-Anon, and I never stopped going. Never missed a meeting. I took the 12 steps the first night. <laughs> I was smart. I was good. I read them. I got it. You know, three weeks later when they said, powerless over alcohol also means powerless over the alcoholic. Oh, you know, how much did I get? But, you know, I thought I was smart. I thought I was the good one. It took me a full year in Al-Anon to peel off the layers where I hit my personal bottom. A whole year. Because, you know, I wasn't going to give that up. I was afraid that if I, if I didn't try to take care of it and control it, what the heck? Who, what? Who would? Who would? I didn't have God in my life. I'd left God a long time back. Who was going to take care of us if it wasn't me? And, you know, I did love my martyr role. I really loved it. I, I grew up at the foot of my mother. And, I, I, and being Catholic really helped. <laughs> and, you know, I, I loved my martyr role. And I would always envision myself, you know, when I was trying to get rid of Leo and he wouldn't go, I would imagine funerals. I never planned deaths. I was too nice. 
But I planned a lot of funerals. I always figure if Alan and I never put out a little book of funerals, we would pro- it would be a bestseller because we have really come up with some good stuff. So I would plan these funerals, and there Leo would be laid out. And I'd be standing next to him in my navy blue drab outfit, wearing my pins. They were my charms. They were my, they were my medals. I had a little lawnmower medal. I had a little garbage can medal. I had a little checkbook medal. Because those are all the things I was doing. Because, you know, I was a martyr. I had to do that stuff. And all the things I was doing and saying, it was really the message I was sending to Leo is, go ahead and drink because I got this under control. So I'd stand there in my medals. I have a sex medal too, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And Leo would be laid out there in the casket, and our neighbors would all come by, and they'd look at Leo, and they'd say, isn't she a good woman? (laughs) That's what they say about that. And you know, I was 30 or 20, 20, my 20s and 30s, and um, usually the Alateens like to hear about the sex part the most, but they're not here, so... You know, uh, I was still young. Leo made me mad a lot. I was angry at him a lot. I wasn't the most receptive person to him romantically, but my body still liked doing it. So I would pretend, this, this is how I got through sex back then. I would pretend I was Miss Kitty, dance hall girl. <laughs> And we'd be making love and doing the thing in the bed. And Sister Mary Gregory would rise up above the bed. Good, good, good. Hover there. Stay while all the dirty stuff was going on. Down there in the bed. And when it was over, I would descend back into myself. And so when I was going to pick my little metal charm out for that, I picked a cowboy boot with a spur. So you see how 26 years later, it's really important for me to get those boots. And tomorrow, before we go home, we're going shopping for spurs. So I came to Al-Anon and you said to me, basically what you said to me is, get a life. That's what I heard. The first speaker I ever heard talked about martyrdom, it was, like a, it was like lights were flashing around what he said. You know, I always had these visceral reactions. Like he'd say, he said martyr, and the lights were going on around the word martyr, and I was feeling this little twinge in my stomach, my gut, saying, I'm not a martyr. What do you mean I'm a martyr? Who's telling me I'm a martyr? <laughs> you know, my little inventory was getting taken. No one knew they were taking it. And so I also heard them say, well, we have these slogans. And I would hear them talk about the slogans around the table, and I'd say, oh, my God, these people are, they're really, these things are so trite. Slogans, live and let live, jeez. But they were laughing, and I was not. So I thought I would try a few of them. The first one I, the first one I worked was live and let live. It's the first one. And this is how I heard it. I heard Live and let live. 
And so I set out to live. I set out to find out what was my life. Because so you were telling me I had one. You know, you were telling me I could cut all those invisible threads that tied me to Leo, that made me react to be happy, to be sad, to be up, to be down, to whatever, was all about what Leo was doing. Because that's what had happened to me. I'd stopped having any other kind of life. I was home worrying. I was at the window. I didn't drive my car. I didn't look that good. And you told me to give that up. You told me to cut those threads. And that's what I heard. And I started to do it. And I heard you say, this isn't a dress rehearsal. You're not getting another shot at this. Find your life. Find your life. It was all about me. Oh, my God. It was all about me. It wasn't about Leo at all. What an awakening. Because everything I did was around Leo. When he first got sober, he, he uh, slept as much as he ever drank. I didn't know that was part of his recovery. I didn't know it was a physical illness as well and he needed to do that. I didn't know he didn't have any resources for dealing with life because he'd been drinking since he was a kid. All I knew was now, instead of waiting for him to come home for life to start, I was now sitting at the end of the bed waiting for life to start. And you told me, knock that off. Go do something. And I would say, well, what will I do? And my sponsor was a craftswoman. And she would say to me, make something. And I'd say, well, like what? And she'd say, make an Afghan. And I'd say, too big. An Afghan. So I would make a potholder. And I would say, good, you're good. You're good, you did that. And then I would, then I was, you know, I was always so over-responsible because I was so used to taking care of it all and doing it all. And, you know, that was my life. And so I would practice staying home from work. And I remember I, one day I practiced, I said, I'm staying in bed all day, I'm reading this novel, I'm staying home, that's it. Ten o'clock passes, 10 a.m., I'm going, oh my God, I don't think I can do this. I think I can stay in bed this long. I would have to practice getting in the car and going places. I practiced driving into Buffalo to get my own driver's license. I practiced driving to my mother's, crying all the way, because I didn't think I could do it. I practiced going across the state to Massachusetts to see my friend. And then I took all my friends, all my students to France. Hey, you told me I could. And I never looked back and I never will because it's about my life. And it's about the life I make for me. And what a relief that must have been to Leo. What a relief to not have this person constantly circulating around him. What's he doing? Is he waking up? Can we go someplace? You know, that must have been a pain in the butt. He never said it was in those words. But I came to you and you gave me freedom and you gave me Alan and then you gave me service. You gave me service. I was pulled into service so fast. My, they knew I needed it. I was nine months and I was already at an assembly meeting. And I remember they were voting on something, they were going to buy something. And they voted and everybody voted and then a little while later the treasurer said, well, do you think we should check to see if we have the money? And I thought, oh my God, these people. So I stood up, nine months in the program at an assembly, raised my hand. Don't you think you people should use Robert's Rules of Order? They looked at me, they laughed. They said, this is Alan on, honey. And they were right. 
and I got into service, and it was the best gift you ever gave me. You gave it for a lot of reasons. It took me out of my house, it took me to assemblies, it took me overnight, it gave me an excuse to do all the things that I couldn't do on my own because I just couldn't, because I didn't have enough self-worth to do that. It helped me with my character defect because I'll tell you what, if you go and serve, if you get on a committee, if you think you're good and perfect and fine, just get on a committee. People will help you with that. You know, they'll really share that with you. And so I got a life back. And Leo found sobriety. And we were doing okay. And I stopped pulling the arms of those little kids. You know, I used all those tools you gave me. I, I used the slogans even though I thought they were stupid. And my people at my meeting would say to me, Mary, because I was into anguish about, mental anguish about God. You know, God didn't have anything to do with me. Where was he? I was mad at him. He wasn't in my life. And they'd say to me, Mary, just get up every day, turn your day over to God, and, you know, that's all you have to do. So I'd get up in the morning, I'd say, God, if you're out there, and by the way, I really don't think you are, I give you this day, see what you can do with it. And you know what? God reached out to me, that arrogant little way, that frightened little person, and he reached out his hand to me and he pulled me along and everything got better. Everything got better. So I'd do a little more and I'd do a little more and I'd be, those little guys would be in the bathtub splashing and carrying on and acting like maniacs like kids do at that age. And I'd be jerking their arms and ready to yell and I'd say, serenity prayer. And I'd say the serenity prayer over and over like a litany. And I'd feel this calm fall over me. And every step along the line, God would say to me, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, till I finally could turn my whole will and my life over to him. And you know, it was hard for me to turn my will and my life over to something I didn't understand and something I couldn't see. And I left the God of my youth behind me. And uh, the day I found that God, I remember this. <clears throat> I was up painting this bedroom. I painted my children's bedroom navy blue. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And then a couple years later, we thought we would do it beige. And in order to save time and money, I thought I wouldn't prime it. I would just go up and paint it. It would be all right. So, you know, I painted it every day because that's what you have to do when you're trying to cover navy blue with beige. So I sat there, I think it was like the third day, and I'm up there rolling, rolling. I'm having this conversation with this higher power that I don't even know and don't have any clue. And all of a sudden, I find myself cursing at my higher power, at a higher power, I mean really cursing, saying, where were you? I'm so hurting, where were you? And I got this sense of calm come over me. I didn't even know I was that angry with God and I, I didn't know I felt abandoned my, by God. I didn't know any of that till that day, painting that room. And as soon as I got that out, I had a sense of peace. And that higher power hasn't left me since. And it reminds me of the story of the couple that were married 25 years and they're driving along in the car and the wife's sitting on her side and the husband's sitting on his side. They're going out to dinner and a movie. And she says, ah, 25 years ago. She said, remember I used, we used to sit close together? And he looks over at her and he says, yeah, who moved? <laughs> You know, that was me and my higher power. Who moved? 
And so that's how I came to understand him. And every step along the way, you gave me, you gave me what I needed. And you didn't push me and you didn't tell me I had to think this way. And you just let me find it on my own and you let me have my pain. But you showed me the way, every step of the way. And you know, now I, I, I couldn't live without that higher power. It's the most important piece of my life. And it's in control of my life. All the time. And when I feel like I'm taking that back, boy, I just give it up. I know when I can finally get powerless over anything, when I finally say, I give up, that's the best thing that could ever happen to me because that's when God takes over. And you gave me that. I think of God now like this incredible source of power. And, and I like to envision being with God as being in a rowboat out on a lake. And you know, I'm in the rowboat and I'm rowing, rowing. God's at the tiller, setting the direction, going all over the lake, everything's smooth, everything's good. And then, you know, being who I am, I say, excuse me, God, could I get back there and take the tiller? And God and my life says, okie dokie. So I get up, I move back to the back, God comes to the front where I was and I'm holding the tiller and we're just going in circles, we're going in circles. And you know why that is? Because God don't row. <laughs> you know, so if I can stay in my seat and just row my brains out and let God do the direction setting, that's all I need. That's all I need in life. So I get into service and I'm active in my, air, my local area, I'm active in my assembly area, I get the privilege of serving as a delegate. Leo is the AA delegate at the same time, what an incredible thing. We almost broke the mailman's back that year, those years. And we, we've resolved our marriage issues because you were smart enough to tell us that Al-Anon and AA were not going to fix our marriage. If we had marriage problems, we needed to go where that could happen. And we did that. And you were smart. We did the hard work. Even when we didn't want it to work, God's still at the tiller. Works if it's supposed to work. Doesn't if it's not supposed to. But you told us we could go get the help we needed. I'm in Al-Anon. I'm in Al-Anon for 20 plus years. And you know, life happens and we're doing fine and the kids are growing and I have a new job, and uh, it was a pretty demanding job. It took called a lot out of me. And I was on this job for a few months and uh, came home from a little vacation weekend with Leo, and there was a phone call. And the call was uh, from my brother saying that my sister had been killed in a plane crash with her husband, the sister in my set. I was devastated by her death. And a couple weeks later, my mother, who was getting up in age, rolls her car over, crashes into a telephone pole, has to, this is the story of my mother. She's, she's driving, she's starting to fail, but she's still driving herself around, right, because she won't give it up. Crashes into a phone, phone pole, rolls, rolls the car over, and the policeman comes and he says, we're taking you to the hospital. And she gets out and she goes, no, I'm fine. <laughs> Where'd I get that? So my mother has to go in the hospital, has to have a pacemaker put in, I have to take her out of the living uh, arrangements she's made. She starts in kind of a downward 
Well, over the past couple, next couple of years, I have to put her in a nursing facility, which was the most traumatic experience of my adult life. And Leo's mother contracts breast or lung cancer and dies, and our dog died. It was like, what, what's happening? You know, it's a little space of time, three, four years, all this stuff happens. And, you know, being a good Al-Anon, I just keep going. I just keep going. You know, I take care of business, and I just keep going and moving on. And all of a sudden, I wake up one morning, and I can't get my head off the pillow. And all I know is that all this feeling of anxiety and fear is just enveloping me. can't get rid of it. I just am paralyzed with it. You know, I felt that anxiety over different parts of my life. Frequently waking up in the morning is where I'd get the most paralyzed. This was, this was something I couldn't handle. And I went to meetings and I listened at meetings and listened at meetings and just couldn't seem to get what I needed. And they were passing around one of our books, a new book at the time, Survival to Recovery, and there's a list of questions in there. And I'm flipping through the book and I come to this list of questions. It's about, did you grow up with a problem drinker? And I'm reading the questions and I'm going, yep, yep, do you feel insecure? Yep, do you feel not good enough? Yep, do you feel, and I'm going down this list and checking this off. So I thought, well, maybe I'll read this book. I read it. I could not find myself in that book. I thought, I don't get it. I'm answering yes to all these questions. I'm not getting it. But I can't get out of bed in the morning. And my boss is saying, come on, Mary, we got work to do, and I can't get there. And all I can do is cry. So because you gave me permission, which is something I never could do growing up, you know, we didn't tell anybody, we didn't talk about it, we didn't go anywhere. And you had told me it was okay. I went to see a professional. I'm sitting in his office, and I'm blabbing away, blabbing away. And he says, first of all, you need to shut up. (laughs) You want me to help you? (laughs) Moi? And uh, he says to me, you know, we talked a while, and he's letting me go on. He's getting a sense of things. He says, Mary, we've got to find out why your spirit's dying. Your spirit's dying. He said, tell me about your childhood. I said, I'm not going back in that shit. Who said that? I thought I had this great life. I told you I thought I had this great life. And I hear myself saying that. And I think, he keeps telling me, you've got to get in touch. You've got to get in touch. And I'm thinking, what the heck does he want from me? And the only thing I knew how to do was to come home and read liter- my Ellen on literature. I pick up that book, the same book. A little bit earlier, I hadn't found myself in. And this time, I did what you always say to do, is that I didn't compare, I identified. And I underlined almost every feeling, every sense in that book. There's just, there was even a guy in there that said everything was just fine, <laughs> says Bugs. You know that line? And I was in that book, and I went back to him, and I said, how did I not know? How did I not know? I wanted to, you know, I had this life for myself planned. We were poor. We didn't have a thing. I wanted to go to college. Nobody had gone to college in my family. I was going. And I wasn't going to any college. I was going to go to a big college. I was going to go to Mount Holyoke or something. I wanted my father to fill out financial forms. He refused. Well, of course he refused. He didn't have anything to write down. And I'm in this little fantasy world about what I was going to do and be. And I said to him, how did I not know that? How did I not know? 
And he looks at me and he says, well, in the fellowships of AA and Al-Anon, some people call that denial. <laughs> oh, okay. So here I am, 20 years in the program, and he's walking me back through whatever it was in my childhood that formed me, that caused me to carry all kinds of baggage and garbage right into a marriage and right straight through. And, you know, I thought I'd recovered, and, you know, I had a second recovery. I had the most wonderful second recovery. And, you know, life keeps happening, death keeps happening, but now we live it. And I haven't had those mornings. And he said to me, can you love yourself, Mary? Can you stop for a little while? Can you give yourself time to refuel? And I said, I don't know if I can do that. You know, I'm used to being St. Mary of perpetual motion. (laughs) So I started to try. I quit every organization I was in. I quit every leadership position I was in. I suggested to Leo that we move to a simpler place. It's really a good idea to move when you're in a state like I was in because it's just a calming effect on you. (laughs) So Leo goes along with me. You know, he's always there for me. I hope I am for him. And we move to a simpler little place. And I'm saying to him, Leo, we got to have a lot of light in this place because I have like this thing going on with light. I need more light all the time. So we walk into this little house we're having built And uh, I said, I can't live here. I need a bigger window there. (laughs) We put this enormous window. I said, I can't. We need another skylight. I needed to flood myself with light. I don't explain that. I can't explain it. I need light. We moved out there. I didn't put a picture up. I threw everything away in our other house that I had. People would, I I often thought, geez, they're going to say, did she ever have a life? I just wanted to get rid of it all. I can't explain that. Just wanted to get rid of it all. The only thing that I was convinced into taking was Leo's bowling ball, which he had not used in 25 years, (laughs) but which got to be a point of contention up there in the attic when we were all figuring out what we would take. And Leo got his vindication. You know, he he used to bowl when he was drinking. And he had this bowling ball that was made for him. You know, his fingers fit right in that. And he said, we're taking the bowling ball. We're out in our little new place one day, and the kids say, hey, let's go bowling. And he says, aha, my bowling ball. And he went and got it, and of course, his fingers 25 years later didn't fit in those same holes. But, you know, what's the point? So I sat in that house, and all I did is go to church and go to my job. I didn't even go to Al-Anon. And I sat quietly, and I knit, and I healed. I gave that gift to myself to just be still and let myself refuel. You never yelled at me for that. You never said, you better get to meetings. You just let me sit quietly and refuel. I read my literature every day. But I didn't make my phone calls. I didn't get to a meeting. You know, and after a couple of years, I did. I was feeling better. I wasn't waking up with that huge anxiety. I knew I could face life again. I had some energy back. The depression, huge depression, had lifted. And I started feeling this little sense of um, trying to take control of things again. You know, things at work, I, I knew I was going where I shouldn't go. And so I sought out a meeting, and I found my little Hamburg meeting. 
my little dysfunctional group out there. I'm fixing them though. <laughs> and I came back to the fellowship and I came back to you. And you know, all I can say is I don't know what happens in these rooms, but there's this healing that takes place. We bring our broken selves, we bring our pain, and we just sit here together and we talk and we love each other up and miraculously we heal and we get better and there's recovery. And there's even more than recovery, there's like this vision of hope, you know, that something else good is going to happen. I don't know what that's going to be in my life. I'm hoping it's going to be that I break 100 playing golf. <laughs> I have such high, high expectations for life. But, you know, I know it's going to be good because I know I'm in these rooms with you and I'm following the program. When I, was a, when I was a kid, you had to iron shirts. Do you remember that? Someone has duped us back into that. I don't know how that happened. But my mother had all these white shirts that my father wore, and she had to iron them. And to iron them, you had to first wash them, and then you had to lay them out, dry them. Then you had to lay them out, and you sprinkled them with this little sprinkler. Does anybody relate to this? Anybody young in here is going, what the heck is she talking about? So you sprinkle these clothes, and then you'd, you'd put them in these little sausages, and you'd roll them up and put them in sausages, and then you'd put them in a little peach basket with a vinyl liner that had cherries on it, and they would all have to stay in there, like Scott, telling jokes to each other in there. And when they were just right, you'd take them out, and then you could iron them. But when you pulled those shirts out of that basket, oh my God, they were wrinkled beyond what you could even imagine. And I, I thought that my life was like one of those shirts that had just come out of the basket, unbelievably wrinkled. And you know, I was forever trying to just use the force of my own power to get those wrinkles out. You know, pressing down, I'll get them out. I'll get them out. And then I came to you. And you said, why don't you take step three? And I said, what's that? You said, buy an iron. <laughs> oh, okay. So I get an iron and I'm going over those shirts and things are a lot better. And then you say to me, why don't you take step 11? And I say, what's that? And you say, plug it in. <laughs> oh. So I plug it in. I plug into some source of energy and power and heat. And now I'm ironing over those shirts and everything's just getting better all the time and they look great. And sometimes, you know, I get ironing down the board and I'm, I'm just moving away a little and that pulls out. And I have to say to myself, things aren't going so good. You better plug it in again and you better plug it in every day. And that's what I try to remember to do. I just plug into the source of hope and love and energy every day. And then things are okay. And you've given me all that. How did you do that? All they did is show up. And you gave me all that. Thank you so much for inviting us here. Thank you so much for, for putting Scott and Sandy in our lives and giving us such a weekend of fun. I love you very much. I'm so grateful to be here.